0: Welcome to episode 13. You have come to the right place if you're looking for all things movie related, past, present, and future, not to mention fun trivia to get your mental movie motor running. I'm Frank, a suburbanite in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and this is Silver Screeners. Today's episode is actually going to be a little different from all that have come before it. Instead of focusing on one, or two particular movies, we're going to go back to Hollywood's so-called Golden Age. This was the first, roughly the first half, give or take, of the 20th century, an era when movie stars were glamorized, scandals were sanitized, and studios controlled the publicity of their stable of actors and directors with with a pretty tight grip. The two movie stars and their respective scandals that we're going to be focusing on are swashbuckling action-adventure star Errol Flynn and Oscar-nominated actress Lana Turner. Both major box office draws at the peaks of their careers, both seen as objects of lust in their own ways and both living personal lives that were... (laughs) most decidedly not matters of public record as they probably would have been these days, and the studios certainly did their best to try to clamp down on any unwanted or negative publicity that would tarnish their image, because if their images became tarnished, so too did the image of the studios. You may know Errol Flynn from classics such as 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood, co-starring Olivia de Havilland, and 1935's Captain Blood, And you may know Lana Turner from classic film noir like The Postman Always Rings Twice with John Garfield, as well as melodrama like The Bad and the Beautiful and Imitation of Life, as well as her Oscar-nominated and her only Oscar-nominated performance in Peyton Place. I do think that it is appropriate to mention the allegations and the accusations, the details of the scandals that we'll be talking about today, may be uncomfortable for more sensitive listeners. What some are okay with hearing, others may understandably not be. And it's all subjective. So we will be taking a very factual approach, nothing exploitative, nothing sensationalist. But for the record, the conversation will include references to details of the crimes that were committed, crimes of a murderous and sometimes of a sexual nature. So please proceed at your own discretion. To give us his knowledge and expertise on these two scandals, what makes this episode really exciting for me. I'm really excited to have on today's show the very first guest to appear on Silver Screeners, Mr. R. Mark Kantrowitz, attorney, judge, and published author. He is the most highly published author on Massachusetts state law. He has written extensively on criminal law, civil law, juvenile law, evidence, and mental health and his book, which I highly recommend. His book, Old Whiskey and Young Women, and I'll let him tell you the history of that title. His book, Old Whiskey and Young Women, American True Crime Tales of Murder, Sex, and Scandal. First published in 2015. This is his fourth history-related book, and it's available on Amazon and your local book retailer, wherever you get your reading materials. I'm going to be posting the Amazon link to the show notes when this episode goes live, so you'll be able to access it online very easily. And again, I do highly recommend this book. This is some fascinating and absorbing reading that you're going to get here. Not every story that he writes about in this book is necessarily show business-related, but today we'll focus on two specific chapters in particular— one of them looking at Errol Flynn and a controversy, a scandal that he became caught up in, and the second on Lana Turner and her daughter, whose name was Cheryl. So, Mac Kantrowitz, he has served as an assistant district attorney, private counsel, and a judge, first on the juvenile court and then the appeals court, which is the second highest court in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He was also lead attorney on two dozen first-degree murder cases, so he knows his stuff. (laughs) Currently, he writes a monthly column for Lawyers Weekly called Law and History. Mark, thank you for joining me today, and welcome to Silver Screeners.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me.
0: So, yeah. Old Whiskey and Young Woman. Uh, This book I absolutely devoured. This is a great collection of stories. Again, not all of them show business related, but me being the movie buff that I am, if I were asked to select a couple of favorites, um, I loved the chapter on these two, Harold Flynn and Lana Turner. You have more as well. You have one on Fatty Arbuckle, William Desmond Taylor, which... Hopefully we'll be able to talk about it at a later time. But for today's show, we're going to focus on Errol Flynn first and then Lana Turner. So please share with us your knowledge about Errol Flynn and his history, what the controversy, the scandal was all about, how it played out, what the fallout was.
1: Well, thanks to Errol Flynn, I got the title of my book, Old Whiskey and Young Women, (laughs) when uh, he was asked later in life. To sum up his life and his problems, he said, my problem is, is that I like my whiskey old and my women young. And he had a history of, of, of going out with uh, younger women. Uh, he got married to uh, a French actress in 1935, Lily debita a lovely woman, and made a dashing couple, two of them. And, and I have a picture of them in, 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 in my book, and uh, it was through her efforts that he got his really big break in Captain Blood, which uh, which, which, he, uh, which he made, thankfully, because Lily was friends with the head of the studio's wife, and they were, that, that studio was looking to uh, do a, a, a movie to counter a, a mutiny on the bounty, which was a big hit, so they needed a swashbuckler, and before you know it, Errol Flynn was uh, was that uh, uh, swashbuckler. Now uh, he was married for uh, seven years to Lily, 1942, and then his troubles had been percolating, and they really burst out in 1942 with the statutory rape accusations against two young ladies. It was Betty Hansen, who was 17 years, uh, 17 years old at the time, an aspiring actress and Peggy Satterley, who was 16, and she was a dancer at a kind of a renowned, famous uh, Hollywood uh, establishment, Florentine Gardens. And, and uh, they complained, or it was discovered, that he allegedly had sex with, uh, with them, and then being underage, he was charged with two counts of statutory rape. Now, uh, the first thing he did is what everybody, I suppose, should do is get a good lawyer. And he got the best lawyer, Jerry Geisler, who represented Charlie Chaplin in the past when uh, Chaplin was, 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 was charged with that. He, met, he, he later would represent Marilyn Monroe in her divorce from Joe DiMaggio. And he would represent Lana Turner's daughter in our next story. So he really was the lawyer... Uh, to the stars. So Errol Flynn uh, hires uh, attorney Gessler and, 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 and off we go. Now, Hanson alleged that uh, she was drugged at the home of one of Flynn's friends and he took her upstairs where they had uh, uh, sex. Uh, Peggy, sadly, conversely, uh, alleged that they had sex uh, over the course of a few uh, evenings in his yacht. Now his yacht. There were it was a party going on, so there were you know many people, uh, you know, on the yacht, and and uh, he allegedly had sex with her. Yet she never complained about that, which is something that guys are undoubtedly uh, took advantage of. Now uh, Flynn had two nicknames for Saddley: J.B., which stood for Jailmate, and S.Q.Q., which stood for San Quentin whale. Well, so uh, one would imagine that if Errol Flynn admitted that the nickname he called Saddley was J.B., then that would have cooked his goose, right, because he really would have been admitting to the, uh, to, to the, uh, to the uh, offenses. The two young ladies had, you know, they had a sordid past. They'd lied about their ages. Uh, one of them had an abortion, and that all came out during the trial. On top of that, and making things worse for the prosecution, they were just awful witnesses. So during the trial, you know, you know, they would get tied up in knots. They would contradict themselves. And, and members of the, you know, the, the people watching, the people in the gallery would sometimes laugh or just shake their head in, in disbelief. Okay, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was that, going
0: to say, you yeah. mentioned that in your book here. I was looking at that very passage as yeah. soon as you said that. Everybody, I'm going to read here word for word from page 45. On cross-examination, he had a field day with both girls, which at some point had spectators, as you just said, either laughing or shaking their heads in disbelief. The witnesses confused their stories and readily admitted to sordid pasts and lying about their ages. They also told of an abortion and being the subject of an ongoing criminal investigation. Something that he actually comes out and admits to, he wrote a, didn't he write a memoir called My Wicked, Wicked Ways? I think it was called. So. Yeah. Errol, so straight from Errol Flynn himself, my wicked, wicked ways. So it's just interesting. This is a very, uh, you know, interesting cast of characters. I mean, silence
1: in the courtroom. The courtroom is packed with spectators. And have you missed the foreman or Mrs. Uh, Ms. Foreman? Have you reached a verdict? We have your honor and there's a hush. You can imagine this in a movie, right? There's a hush Absolutely How fine you is is, is a defendant guilty or not guilty and then the dramatic pause and the close up of the jury for a lady or four minute and she says, Not guilty and then bedlam, bedlam, you know, you know, flashballs start going off, is yelling and screaming, everybody jumps to their feet, the lawyers are congratulating each other. The judge, in wrapping up the case, tells the jury, I have enjoyed the case and I think you have. Are we at the movie scene? Wow. Two. <laughs> <laughs> two young ladies. Yeah, it's, this is a serious, serious trial. Statutory rape. That's and, and crazy. It, isn't I, mean, it? Isn't it? I mean,
0: in all of your experiences, I can't imagine that you yourself have ever been involved in anything where that kind of a statement would go on public record from... S-
1: su- suffice it to say, I never said anything like I never said <laughs> Oh, let alone you saying it. <laughs> Just, wow, that's, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so a few interesting uh, footnotes to the case. The, 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 the uh, phrase, in like Flynn, because you know, he had beaten the... And it, oh, he's in like Flynn, and that became, in like Flynn became really a, 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 a nationwide, if not worldwide, a phrase. Also, interestingly, during the trial, there was a little coffee stand nearby, and a fellow ran with his daughter, daughter, Nora Eddington, who was 18 years old at the time. And you can see where this is going, because Errol Flynn would like coffee before. And before you know it, he and Nora are chatting, and then they're flirting with one another. Uh And ultimately, they're sleeping with one another. She gets pregnant. And they get married, and they have two and they have two children. And then uh, they uh, get divorced in 1949. He marries his next wife in 1950, Patrice Waymore. And dis- despite being married, uh, marriage never slowed down Now, Flint, despite being uh, married. He was carrying on with the young lady, Beverly uh, Adelant, who was only 15 years old. Oh, God. And, and Flint oh. said to her, here, said to her here I go again, Woodsy. So like, he knew what he was doing. Obviously, he just could help himself. And he committed yet another statutory rape, obviously, with, with, with Beverly, who he had helped get a part in a movie. I think that's perhaps how they met, or as they met. And then he helped get a part in, in, in one of the movies. As you said, he led a hard life, a drinking mm-hmm. life in 1959. He had his last appearance a TV show on the Red Skeleton Show. i dating myself. I remember the Red Skeleton Show. And, and, and literally about three or four weeks after appearing on this show, he died. He was bloated. He didn't look anything like the swashbuckler that he had been. And he died at the age of 50.
0: Wow. To be honest, given the abuse that his body took with the alcohol and the addictions, it's amazing that he lasted that long. That's That's unbelievable.
1: And he was also unhealthy. He was 4F. He wanted to fight in World War II when he couldn't because Mm of his various physical ailments, of which there were many, believe it or not. So Mm -hmm. notwithstanding the swashbuckler image, he really, you know, was somewhat unhealthy.
0: So at least from the physical sense, it's true. As cliched as it may sound, all that glitters is not necessarily gold. He may <laughs> he may look like he has it all on screen in terms of the physicality and the charisma and the whole thing, but uh, everybody has something. That's exactly right. Wow. Well, that's, wow. If you want to learn more about Errol Flynn or his story, again, the name of the book is Old Whiskey and Young Women. Uh, But while we are doing very well time-wise, let's shift gears here and go into a discussion on Lana Turner. Now, Lana Turner, (laughs) I guess the best way to distinguish her from any other quote-unquote sex symbol of 20th century Hollywood, the moniker that was sort of thrust upon her, which she claims was to her chagrin, was the Sweater Girl of MGM, which you can all fill in the blanks there in terms of why she was given that name but she at the time i mean if we're speaking of underage at the time that she made her first appearance on film that's from that very first appearance that's where the label came from because one of the first uh, her the first time she shows up on screen she's wearing a tight fitting sweater and she's walking down a street and at the time of shooting that scene, I believe she was underage. I think she was only about 16, maybe 17 years old. Yeah, she
1: was born in 1921.
0: So. 21, okay. So, yeah. So, and this was definitely before the yeah. war years. So, yeah. So she, was, so, she was a minor then as well when that label was slapped on her. And it's just astounding when you think about how, in so many good ways, you know, standards have... <laughs> changed and evolved over the decades. But anyway, Lana Turner, so she was a, uh, so she became sort of the unwilling sex uh, sex symbol. She, like a lot of actors, really wanted to be taken seriously, really wanted to have a good role, a good meaty role, wanted to be known for more than just her looks. Now, like Errol Flynn, Lana Turner also lived a life that was, you know, without trying to without sounding judgmental. I mean, she she lived her life uh, as she saw fit, you know, she made choices and she was married, I believe it was what seven, seven times? Eight Eight times. Eight
1: times to seven men.
0: Eight times to seven men. That's what it was. Eight times to seven men. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, which, uh, hey, you do you, I do me. (laughs) But she, um, the, the her personal scandal, her situation that we're going to be talking about here does involve um, one particular man named Johnny Stompanato. And I don't want to take away any more of your thunder than I already have. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about this situation and what happened exactly.
1: Sure. Well, Lana, as you indicated, was a, shall we say, a free-spirited uh, a woman. She had affairs with Clark Gable, Frank Sinatra, Mickey Rooney, Tyrone Powell, to name a few. And obviously... These were kind of superstars at the time, you know, she's uh, you know, dating these uh, individuals. And interestingly enough, you true movie fans who believe she was discovered at Schwab's pharmacy, she wasn't, she was in fact discovered by Billy Wilkerson at the Top Hat Cafe. And Wilkerson was uh, a powerful individual at the time. I believe he edited The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I think he mm. was the owner of that, and it was one of the early founders of Las Vegas.
0: Uh, and or- she was, I'm sorry to interrupt, because, yeah, the, the legend goes that she was having a chocolate, a, a frap or a malt or something to that effect. I saw her on YouTube, uh, an old episode of the Phil Donahue show from the early 1980s, and she said that... Like you just said, that wasn't the case, that that be, sort of became the stuff of legend, that she was actually at a cafe, and she was having a Coke, and the reason why she was there in the middle of the morning was because she was actually cutting a typing class. Okay. So <laughs> had she not cut cutting school, place, had she yeah. not cut class, then who knows what might have been. <laughs>
1: her, just for some background, her first husband, interestingly enough, was Artie Shaw, who himself would be married numerous times. And when Shaw married Lana Turner... Uh, and that broke the heart of two women at the time, Judy Garland, who was hoping that Shaw would marry her, and Betty Grable, with whom he was also carrying on an affair. So Artie Shaw at the time was going out with Lana Turner, Judy Garland and Betty Grable. And, and Betty Grable was pregnant at the time with Shaw's uh, child and she elected to get an abortion. Uh, the shaw Lana turner Union lasted four months, and then they each went their separate ways to get married numerous uh, numerous times. So, second husband was Steve Crane, who held himself out to be this wealthy type of fellow. In fact, it was nothing of the sort. They have a child, Cheryl, and Cheryl was the individual who really uh, is a major player in the uh, triangle of Lana Turner, Cheryl Crane, and Johnny Stompinato. Johnny Stompinato was an organized crime figure, worked for the Mickey Cohen uh, crime family in Los Angeles. He was also a patriot. He fought in World War II. Uh, He was a Marine. Uh, He fought in the Pacific. And then after the uh, war, he comes home, and decides uh, he's going to become a gangster, or perhaps continue his gangster career. And his main MO was was well, he was a big, strong, handsome guy. He would he would show women, older women around town, and they would pay him. It's a bit of a jingo, frankly. And then he sees uh, Lana Turner from afar and under a, a, a false name, starts wooing her, sending her flowers and 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 notes saying how much that. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he he likes her, so uh, so she, uh, Lana Turner starts going out out with Johnny Stapp and they and really make a, uh, a noteworthy pair pair. You know, she's beautiful, he's movie star handsome. Uh, he's also very very jealous, and uh, notwithstanding his. Sexual peccadillos. He got very jealous of uh, of Lana Turner. There's a story, perhaps apocryphal, I don't know, that that Lana is off filming a movie with Sean Connery. This is before 07, and 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 there were rumors of Sean Connery carrying on with Lana, and Johnny gets very upset and flies to the movie set where he has a confrontation, which which the with the future James Bond. And, and, and the tale goes, whether it's true or not, and Frank, I'll let you get to the bottom of this, 007 flattens him, which, <laughs> I, which I find hard to believe. The guy's a former Marine, he's an organized crime figure, but, but that's the story that 007, pre-007 uh, flattens Johnny, who, uh, uh, who, who who who
0: leaves the set. Well, I mean, with all due respect to yeah. 007, I'm looking at a picture in your book right now that From, you have of, of Stompanato on page 51, I... Yeah, I <laughs> I'm having trouble seeing I, again. Hey, all due respect, Mr. Connery. He's you know, you are and will always be you know the definitive James Bond. But I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, so. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> we is... weren't there, folks. But you never know.
1: <laughs> so. uh... April 4th, 1958. That's the key day. Johnny and Lana get into an argument. Started about he wants to go to the Academy Awards with her, and and she says no. You know, it's just not. You know, the studio doesn't want her seen with an organized crime figure, and she says, no, they get into a fight. The fight continues over a few days, and on, on April 4th, they get, onto, they get into yet another fight. Cheryl was 14 years old at the time. He's the daughter of Lana Turner. They're at Lana's new house that Johnny helped her move into just the prior week or so. That's right.
0: They were newly moved in and it was him really who was the catalyst for this new residence, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know,
1: Uh, like, yeah, and, well, he certainly helped her, you know, move into the house, so, so... uh, And and
0: Cheryl was her... Cheryl was the one child she had. She didn't, was, She had no exactly additional right. children. Okay.
1: That's right. She she had one child through husband number two, Stephen Crane, and then she was the uh, she was a child. So uh, so she hears them arguing yet again. Nothing new for this poor. You know, domestic violence is awful for anyone, for any child. And at fourteen, she is still a child, and and hearing you know her. Her, her mother getting into a, an argument with uh, Johnny Stompanato, who might have been a father figure, I don't know. And they're you know, arguing, arguing in Lannis' in a, a bedroom. And and the story goes that Shell goes downstairs and gets a knife and comes upstairs. And then what happens next is somewhat murky. So uh, it, it's, you know, once again, I guess we'll never know uh, what really happened, but uh, Cheryl is accused of stabbing to death, one stab wound, Johnny stomping auto. Uh, he either opened the door, and, or she opened the door, and uh, she sees story number one, Johnny about, you know, getting hit the mother, story number two, Lana's version is that he was leaving which kind of makes sense, because he's stabbed, apparently, in the stomach, I believe, and he walks into the knife, and it's just one one stab wound. But anyway, so what, uh, Cheryl is, is ultimately charged with, uh, you know, homicide. She's a juvenile, obviously. However, the first call, I suspect, was not made to the EMTs, was not made to the police, but was made to that very well-renowned attorney to the stars, Jerry Geisler, who gets to the scene probably before anyone else, and in some tales, say he cleaned up the scene. Uh, you know, as I said, who knows what happens? But you know, Cheryl uh, uh, allegedly stabbed Johnny once. So, Stumpen, know, was a former marine; he fought in the Pacific. So him walking into a knife, you know, you you could see it happening. But you know, did it happen? Did it not happen? You know. We,
0: No, or maybe it was a little bit of both. Maybe he truly did walk into the knife, and she saw that she had the upper hand, if you will, and took advantage of that to make sure that he would stay in a vulnerable position in the situation. I mean, who knows? Who knows?
1: Who knows? Who knows? But they have an inquest, and at the inquest, Lana Turner uh, testifies, and they said she was at her Academy uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Award-winning stature whether she lied or not who knows but she looked like the movie star she was perfectly dressed her yeah. nails manicured
0: can say like coiffed hair and Beautiful. the whole thing
1: uh, wearing jewelry that I believe Stampaado had given her ironically so that is uh, ironic and uh, and and the uh, inquest comes uh, out with a verdict it was justifiable homicide and and then everybody basically goes on there Separate ways, and you know, she, you know, Cheryl grows up, and Lana continues to have you her know, movie career. You know, some scandals, Frank, really slow people down. Other people, you know, like both of the people you're talking about today, the scandal had the opposite effect. It really even propelled them, even more. Um, than you, you know this better than I do their movie career, and the great successes of their movie career, but the movies they made right after these incidents were. The public did not shun them and stop going. In fact, they went Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and they continued to have, both of them had fine careers.
0: And I think a lot of that does, as you just said, lay on us, the movie going public. I mean, you think about some of the scandals even today that some stars find themselves embroiled in, some celebrities, whether it's a movie star or a sports figure or whoever. And one thing I've always found very fascinating is that I don't know why, I don't know how, but there always seems to be this very selective I'll use the phrase selective morality that's you know some stars are able to find themselves in very compromising situations but for some reason through some fortuitous stroke of luck they their careers do not suffer. I think particularly for example of Hugh Grant. You know, 25 years ago, Hugh Grant was caught with a prostitute in the mid 1990s. At that point, his career was really just beginning. He certainly, his career certainly didn't suffer. And then you take a look at, you know, then you take a look at somebody who might have uh, an offensive tweet resurfacing, however many, you know, that was first put out there, however many years ago, X number of years ago. And then, you know, all bets are off. So it is interesting how. You know, some people are able to bounce back. Now, is that because they have good PR? Or is that because we, the movie going public, have this selective mindset of we're okay with this, we're not okay with that? You know, they're probably, you know, everyone I'm sure has a different answer to that question. There is no one size fits all response to that, but it is interesting. Er- Errol Flynn and Lana Turner, the. Scandals that their particular circumstance, especially his, especially Errol Flynn's. If Errol Flynn, if he and his scandal were around today, you have to wonder if he would have, you know, in the height of the Me Too movement, you take a look at someone like Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, and you know, uh, even you know Charlie Chaplin and and Errol Flynn. They, I don't want to say that they came out one hundred percent unscathed. You know, had social media been around then, who knows how history would have been written in terms of what the fallout was. But as you said, the fact of the matter is, is that their box office power didn't really suffer as a result. If, if anything, it grew exponentially. I guess Americans just love a good scandal. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, wasn't Eddie Murphy. Wasn't he accused of, of picking up a, a That's prostitute right. or a transvestite prostitute? And yes. Obviously, it did not affect his career at all.
0: I forgot about that one. You're right. You're right.
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Fatty Arbuckle had destroyed his career.
0: That yes, and okay. yeah, yeah, Labor Day weekend, 1921. Yeah. And it was basically, I mean, it was the same no, it wasn't the same kind of crime, but it was a crime of a sexual nature that he was accused of. Exactly. And even though the results of his situation were the same as Errol Flynn's, you know, the verdict of the verdict of not guilty. I mean, he went through several trials, I think, Fatty arab three, Abba, three. Yeah. hung juries and that kind of wow. thing. Yeah. Um, his career never recovered. his career never recovered so it's interesting how his wouldn't but Errol Flynn his did I don't even know if we can say that his career recovered if it never really suffered in the first place I don't know (laughs)
1: that's true
0: so well uh Mark, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming on to the show today. Thank you for being my first guest on Silver Screeners. I would love to have you back anytime. So please let me know if there's ever anything that uh, that you suggest for us to talk about. And to everyone out there, again, his book, Old Whiskey and Young Women, American True Crime Tales of Murder, Sex, and Scandal, published in 2015. And as I mentioned before, I will put the Amazon link in the show notes once this episode gets uploaded. So, uh, get in contact with me to offer feedback or your thoughts on today's episode. If you have any follow-up questions, just simply contact me in my socials. On Twitter, I'm at filmbuff1974. You can join the, or simply post to, the public Facebook film group Silver Screeners, same name as this podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at frankmendoza1974, or you can email me the old-fashioned way at frankmandosa at yahoo.com. And that brings episode 13 to a close. Thank you for listening. And if you could kindly give just a few more seconds of your time and give this podcast a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that's Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever, that would be very much appreciated. It does help with the algorithms to get more people aware of the show. Even better, if you want to leave a quick review, that would be really helpful as well. But as always, I am Frank, and thank you again for joining me. Until next time, keep on screening. See ya.